Good morning, Hope Bible Church. It's great to be here. Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Samuel chapter 17. In 1 Samuel 17, we have the beloved story of David and Goliath. So this morning, I'd like to speak to you about God's solution to giant problems. You know, we're all familiar with the story of David and Goliath. We know that it's a story about good versus evil, the underdog versus the bully, and God versus Satan. And we're even familiar with the fabric of the story itself, that Israel and the Philistines are at a standstill. On one mountain, the army of Israel, and on the other mountain, the Philistine army. And between them is the Valley of Elah, the Valley of Blood. Each army decides to send out a representative to be their champion. That is, to fight on behalf of the entire army. The army of the champion who wins will be the master, and the army of the people who lose will be the servants. The champion of the Philistines, of course, is Goliath, a nine-foot, nine-inch fighting machine. Goliath goes into the Valley of Blood for 40 straight days to challenge Israel's champion, who is non-existent. But David is sent by his father on the 41st morning of this story to go and visit his brothers who are in the army and bring to them bread and cheese. Perhaps David is the first pizza delivery man in the ancient world. David overhears Goliath's challenge that morning and his blasphemy of the living God. And David also witnesses the cowardice of the army of Israel, and he asks permission to fight the giant to preserve God and Israel's honor. David collects five smooth stones, he rejects Saul's armor, and he kills Goliath with a sling and a stone that pierces Goliath's forehead. End of the story. They all lived happily ever after. We are familiar with this story, most of us from our childhood. And you know, about 30 years ago, I was doing a series and preparing for that on the life of David. And as I looked at these facts again, I started to say to myself, wow, I really dig into the primary points of this passage. And I found seven that almost everybody agrees with, whether it's children's curriculum or stories or music. And here are the seven facts that almost everybody agrees on from the story of David and Goliath. Number one, David was a young boy. He's probably nine to 12 years old, and he is certainly no match for Goliath. Number two, David was a small boy. Hey, I've seen Veggie Tales, all right? And I've heard the song, Little David. Number three, David certainly had an inferior weapon. He comes with a rock and a piece of leather, and Goliath is a fighting machine. Number four, David has no military training. He comes to this battle green, and Goliath has been a warrior since his youth. Number five, David was a total unknown. He comes to this battle from the obscurity of history and from the biblical text just walks onto the field in this moment. Number six, 
David couldn't use Saul's armor, remember that? Because it was too big. David is a young boy. They encourage him to at least wear armor if he's going to be killed. And then you have a comical scene of little David trying on a grown man's armor. Number six that people agreed to is this. David couldn't use Saul's armor because it was too big, as I've said. And number seven, if all of those things are true, then we have to conclude this, that this story was a miracle. It's a miracle. A young boy fighting an invincible machine, and he wins through the miraculous intervention of God. But like I said, about 30 years ago, in working through this text, I started to see some things that alarmed me, and all of a sudden I realized this, that all seven of those facts are incorrect. That is not the story of David and Goliath in the Bible. As I started to read the Bible more carefully, I realized that those seven quote-unquote facts are actually converse to the points of the Bible. ruh row. You see, this story is not a miracle. It's a providence, as we learned about last week. You see, miracles in the Bible are things like axe heads floating on water and a million people walking through dry land where the Red Sea had been just minutes before and Jesus raising people from the dead. You see, a miracle is the overturning of nature's laws, which God both created and sustains, in which he overturns them for a moment to create awe and wonder to show his plan and his purposes and his person. Things that could not happen by natural design in which God performs a first cause. But see, as we learned last week, a providence is different than that. God uses second causes. He uses people and water and rocks and slings to accomplish his purpose to show his glory and his plan, but he does not overcome the laws of nature again, which he created and sustained, but he works within the normal means of providence. Let me explain from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, if you want to be a good preacher, you always either quote from the Westminster Confession or Spurgeon. But here's what the Westminster Confession of Faith says about providence. Although In relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly. Yet, by the same providence, he orders them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily or freely. What is it saying? God uses normal means the free choices of others, and the normal properties of rocks and slings to accomplish his perfect purposes, which makes us not cardboard characters in a situation in which we were just looking at fatalism, but rather God is preparing and using second causes for his purposes. The Westminster Confession goes on to say this, God in his ordinary providence makes use of means, yet he's free to work without them, above them, and against them at his pleasure. This story is not a miracle. God did not take the rock from a little boy's hand, 
who threw it wildly in the air and used it like a honing device. People there was going, where's that rock coming from? And Goliath's like, rut row. Wham, he's dead. But rather, we're going to see in this story the pattern of providence that is normally used by God throughout the scriptures. What is that pattern? He prepares people in private before he uses them in public. Secondly, he tests them and prepares their weapons so they're useful for his purposes. And thirdly, he teaches those same people to never trust in their training, never trust in their weapons, but only trust in the power and promises of God. And what we're going to see with David here is that God trained David in private before he ever won that day in public. Number two, we're going to see that David's weapon had already been personally used by David and that the voices of those who told him to quit, that David was able to work through that. And then most important in this passage, we're going to see that David trusted not in his training, not in his weapon, but ultimately in the power and promises of God. So it's not a miracle, Pastor Dave? No. Let's take a look at the text, starting in verse 31. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul. And Saul sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. And Saul replied, Oh, no, no, no. You are not able to go against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a youth, and he's been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and carried out a sheep from the flock, I went after it and struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by the hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he's defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Saul's way of saying, better you than me. So really, who is David when he gets to this point at the battle? How old is he? How big is he? What's he been doing? Is he really obscure, or do we know anything from the Bible? Thankfully, there's a chapter that precedes this chapter, and there's other information from the Bible that explains this. I want to give some things which I think will help us know who David is. Number one, David is obviously old enough to get married when he gets to this battle. How do we know this? Because Saul grants him, as beating, after beating Goliath, the hand of his daughter in marriage, and in the next chapter, David marries Saul's daughter. And we know that that next chapter follows very closely time-wise to this one. David's not nine or ten years old unless that's who Saul wants to marry his daughter. Number two, David is a shepherd who's been out keeping the sheep by himself. He's not simply a boy shepherd, but he's a lead shepherd. Thirdly, he's killed a lion and a bear with his hands and a stick probably not a nine or 10-year-old boy 
but a grown man. Fourthly, in the chapter that precedes this one, David has already been called a man and a warrior. You see, in chapter 16, um, David was already introduced to us. Saul, who had been king, is demon-oppressed and struggling with depression. And he wanted someone, of course, to come and soothe him with some music. So he puts out the request. And here's what it says in 1 Samuel 16. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the young men said, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. He is skillful as a musician. He's a mighty man of valor. He's a warrior. He's a prudent man in speech. He's a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. This is before David ever reached the battlefield. A proven warrior and valor and super handsome. It goes along with the name, apparently. (laughs) Number five, and this is where I really got stuck when I started to look into this. In the chapter that precedes David and Goliath, we're already told that David had actually been the armor bearer of the king before he ever fought Goliath. In verse 21 of chapter 16, it says, Then David came to Saul and attended him. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. Now, what was an armor-bearer in the ancient world? He was to protect the king, and uh, he was like a secret service agent today protecting the president. He would bring a large shield in front of the warrior to try to protect him from arrows and other attacks. Now, you don't bring a 9- or 10-year-old boy to drag a huge shield in front of a warrior. Who do you bring out there? They chose men who were stout men of valor who could stand their ground in an attack. So David's a stout man of valor. He's known in the palace. He has a reputation as a warrior. But even later in the story, after he kills Goliath, Saul's going to say, now whose son is that? So some people have interpreted that as saying, no, these events didn't occur before Saul. Saul doesn't know who David is. Two things. Saul is demon oppressed. He's not having his best weekend. He doesn't remember everything. He's been told that David was Jesse's son, but he's forgotten. But he doesn't forget David. He forgets that Jesse is the father. So David has served as a pool of armor bearers. He's come back and forth from being a shepherd. And he's like being in the National Guard. We're told in 1 Samuel 17, David was the youngest of the three brothers. But David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock. What does that mean? Sometimes David was doing music. Sometimes David was taking care of sheep back at home. And sometimes he was in the army, like in the National Guard. He's part of a pool of armor bearers. Number six, David uses Goliath's sword when he kills him. Goliath is nine foot nine inches tall. His sword must have been huge. Number seven, David did not reject Saul's armor because it was too big. And we'll see in a moment, David said, I can't use those because I've never used them. I'm not used to that, but I am used to my sling. David didn't reject them because they were too big, but because he was not used to using them. Number eight, after this scene of killing Goliath, guess what happens? Saul makes David the general over his entire army. 
Again, not a nine or 10 year old boy. So who is David at this point when he enters the story? He's 18 to 22 years old in my reckoning. He becomes king at 30. He has to flee from Saul for about eight to 12 years. So he's either 18 or 22 at this point and in the chronology. So who is he? Isn't he called a youth here? I mean, Saul says to him, son, you can't fight this guy. You're a youth. And this man has been a warrior since he was a youth. But the Hebrew word there is not for boy. It's the word for teen or young adult. And so what he's saying is, Saul's saying, son, you're a teen or a young man. And this guy is an older man who, since he was your age, has been fighting as a warrior. Saul's point is not you're too young to fight. Saul's point is you're too inexperienced to fight. This guy at your age was already doing hand-to-hand combat in the war zone of the army. He's been doing this many years. You're going to be fighting a man who's far more experienced than you. Okay, so who is this? You're going to have to create some new songs about David for Sunday school. Who is David then at this point? I think he's like a classical student. He's 18 to 22 years old and he's in college, but he has three jobs. He works at the veterinary clinic with sheep. He delivers pizzas. And on the weekends, he's in the National Guard. So who is he? He's a shepherd. He's an armor bearer. He's a mighty man of valor. He has military training. He's already known in the palace. He's 18 to 22 years old, and he's a stud. He's a stout man, a young man, a proven man. David had already been promised in the chapter before this that he was going to be the next king of Israel. And in God's providence, it puts you in a peculiar place in your life. David knows that God has a future for him that's rather large. But David is now stuck in what the Bible calls the wilderness, right? There's a wilderness motif in the Bible. God uses people. Moses, you're going to go in the wilderness. I'm going to train you. I'm going to test you. And then I'm going to put you in public. Uh, He did that with Jesus. He took him 40 days in the wilderness. He takes the apostle Paul in the wilderness. And David, for a time, knowing he's going to be king, has to endure a bunch of stuff until he gets there. And this motif is a time where David is being trained by God in both character and competency. Think about it. David, while waiting to be king, is at home taking care of the sheep. And what if his dad had said to him on this 41st morning, David, I want you to take cheese and bread to your brothers. And David said, not going to do that. I don't do cheese and bread. I'm the next king of Israel. Get one of the servant boys to go down there and do that. If David had not done the simple thing of integrity of obeying his father, he never would have been at the battlefield that day. He never would have been the subject of my preaching. And he would have faded from history. But God used those small things. And secondly, David was taught the integrity of fighting for the audience of one. Think about it. If you're a shepherd and you're by yourself at night, and a lion shows up to eat one of your sheep. A lot of people would have gone home the next day and said, Dad, dude, I tried everything, but lions just eat sheep. David's integrity was he was all by himself out there. And yet a lion attacked a sheep and he went after it and took care of the job. 
it's the small things that God does in the training of the wilderness of life in preparation for larger battles that we need to keep our eye on. And that's what he's doing in our lives. God's normal, ordinary use of providence is to train, to test, and to teach to trust in him. That is the normal means of providence in Scripture. Well, I want to go to our second point then. In that God was training David, but he was also developing David's competencies. And in the time that David was in that wilderness, four things happened to him. He became a shepherd, so he could be the shepherd king of Israel. He became a soldier, so he could lead Israel's fighting. And he learned that Krav Maga, that hand-to-hand combat of the modern Israeli army. He became a songwriter. David, of course, writes Psalm 23 and other beautiful songs, which become the worship book of Israel. And then finally, David became a spiritual giant before he ever got to the battlefield that day. So in verse 38, though, I want to point out David's main competency that God taught him, and that is the sling. David tested his weapons by God's grace personally and did not give in to the voices that tempted him to quit. Look at verse 38 with me. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic, and he put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. And David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I can't go in these, he said. I am not used to these. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Don't miss this. Take a look again at that text. David again says, oh, I can't do that because I'm not used to using conventional armor that you wore as a king. I have not used the sword and that armor to fight, but I do have something I'm used to. What is it? The sling. David is a shepherd boy, would have used the sling. But what I want to talk about, and this is really the crux of the story, is that David was not going to be unusual in using the sling. In fact, the sling gave David a rifle of the ancient world. And that David's weapon in this moment with one guy fighting in the field was a strategic advantage over Goliath. Let me explain. I really got into looking up slinging. You know, you can find anything on the History Channel or YouTube or any place. And as I began to study slinging, I began to find out a few facts. The fact is that someone who is trained in slinging can embed a rock at 60 yards from a target with 90% accuracy during a context. Uh, The Balearic Islands in the Mediterranean has an annual championship to find out who the best slinger is. They still do every year. And they have reenacted the whole David and Goliath thing many times, where they put a large target out there and from an amazing amount of distance, cream it right in the middle of the head. If you're good with the sling, then you would have had a strategic advantage for at least a few minutes till he caught up with you. And that was the beauty of this story, that David was used to a weapon as a shepherd boy, 
But here's the thing. Is he the first guy to walk on the scene in the Old Testament with a sling and do a miracle? Not at all. In the book of Judges, that's 100 to 400 years, depending on your chronology, ahead of this story. Here's what it says. Out of all these people, 700 choice men were left-handed. Each one could sling a stone at a hair, H-A-I-R, and not miss. There were 700 men in the army of Israel hundreds of years before David who could shoot at a hair. It's hyperbole to mean they were deadly accurate. It was not abnormal in the ancient world. Here's another thing about David. After he beats Goliath and after he becomes a general of the army, he then has men in his army who are slingers. First Chronicles 12. Now, these are the ones who came to David at Ziklag, and while he was still restricted because of Saul, the son of Kish, and they were among the mighty men who helped him in war. They were equipped with bows and using both the right hand and the left hand to sling stones and to shoot arrows from the bow, and they were Saul's kinsmen from Benjamin. Dude, David employed in his own army men who were ambidextrous slingers. Reminds me of a scene from Star Wars somehow. I want to read a quote from a Roman writer at the time of the Roman Empire who is describing this very thing. It might be helpful to you to see this. He says, soldiers, notwithstanding their defensive armor, are often more annoyed by the round stones from the sling than by all the arrows of the enemy. Stones kill without mangling the body, and the contusion is mortal without loss of blood. It is universally known that the ancients employed slingers in all of their engagements. There is no greater reason for instructing all our troops without exception in this exercise, as the sling cannot be reckoned any encumbrance, it cannot be overcome, and often is of the greatest service, especially when you're obliged to engage in stony places, to defend a mountain or an eminence, or to repulse an enemy or attack of a castle or city. What's the point? This was a normal weapon of the ancient world, used in the army, was massively destructive. It could be honed down to a skill in which you could be deadly accurate, that David employed it afterwards with his own men. And all builds up to the reality is that David as a shepherd had come to the field that day with a weapon that he was sure that he knew how to use. It wasn't a miracle. It was a providence. God had trained David before he ever got there in preparation for that day. Now, did David do it alone? No, that's not the point. But God uses normal providence and not miracles for our daily Christian life. He's always training us and preparing us and testing us to be used by him. And we don't have to expect a miracle every time we have to do something for the Lord. And every story in the Bible is not a miracle, and most, most of them are these type of providences. Now, a couple of things I want you to think about. When David ran out there to attack Goliath that day, Goliath says, you come at me with sticks. Did Goliath even see the sling? That's always been a question. He saw the stick that David had, but did he see the sling? We're not sure. But think of David's advantage. Nine foot, nine inch guy with over 150 pounds of armor on. 
and David is mobile in the field. David has the advantage of and then this, a nine foot nine inch guy's head must be in proportion the size of a pumpkin. <laughs> David's like, oh yeah, 60 yards, it's going to be a nice day. 40 yards, I've killed him before. 30 yards, oh, you're dead. And 20 yards, goodbye. At some point, because the text tells us in a minute, David ran to the battle line. He knew he only had, or I conjecture that he knew he only had so much time before the giant would know he's using a sling and so much time of surprise before the javelin would be thrown at him. David runs to him and gets in some zone where he's able at that point to unleash this deadly weapon that he had been prepared to use. I want to point one more thing out before we go to our final point. David had to resist the temptation to go home that day when he got to the battlefield. He was trained by God. He'd already killed a lion and a bear. He knew what he was about. But three different voices in this chapter tell him to go home. Uh, we didn't read this part, but his brothers tell him to go home, don't they? They question his motive. They're like, yeah, you think you're called by God to do something, but here's the deal. You're actually a naughty boy. You need to go home because you're trying to become famous. Look, if you want to do something for God, the devil or the flesh or the world's going to try to tell you, your motives are mixed up. Don't get involved with this. Number two, David had the temptation from Saul. Saul said, son, you're no match for this guy. Don't take advice from a coward. Saul was the champion of Israel. And for 40 straight days, he let God be blasphemed. He let Israel be blasphemed. And then he tells you, don't go out there. And then the third voice that tells him to go home is Goliath. Son, you're no match for me. And today, I'm going to tear you apart. The voice of fear, the voice of motive, and then the voice of the unassuming, or the, uh, the uninformed. So finally, last point. God trained David in private before he ever let him win in public. God tested David's weapons, and he told him and worked with him so he wouldn't quit when he was told these things. But the most important point in this passage is that David did not trust in his training or his weapons, but he trusted in the power and plans and, and person of God. Let's take a look at verses 41 to 52 then. Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and he saw that he was only a youth, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give you a flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I will strike you down, and I will cut off your head. And today... I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And then David says, all those gathered here 
will know that it is not by the sword or by the spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. So as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. And David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the scabbard. And after he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. And when the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. If you resist the devil, he will flee from you. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Shaharim road to Gath and Ekron. David's made it clear. It's not by swords, it's not by spears that the Lord saves. It's the Lord's battle. Some have taken David's words to mean it was a miracle. David is acknowledging there was no human intervention here. There was no second causes. In fact, I just walked out there. I was a little boy, whatever. But note two things. Uh, David is not saying that conventional weapons or weapons are unnecessary. Because keeping with the rest of Scripture in the Old Testament, it says horses are powerful, chariots are important, but it's the Lord who delivers. It's not either or. And then secondly, this. David, from this battle on, continues to use conventional weapons the rest of his life. If David's theology was, you go to battle and you bring nothing and you wait for a miracle, then David would have done that the rest of his life. David's words are this. You do not ultimately put your confidence in these things, but you put your ultimate confidence in the Lord. And that's David's point. Have you ever thought about this? I'm sure you did, especially many of you have taught the story of David and Goliath. How did David know that he wasn't going to die there that day? I mean, he goes out there and he's like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to cut off your head. We're going to do this. How does he know that? Well, David was a prophet king. I mean, maybe God is revealing that to him. That's possible. But why is he so confident? Here's the wrong emphasis of the text. If I were to preach, go out of here, find your giant, attack it with your faith, climb the mountain for God, that's just presumption. That's not faith. Faith is God has made a promise and you believe it. I don't know if David had reasoned this, but it's something to think about. Maybe David realized, I can't die here today because I'm going to be the next king. I don't know. But his confidence with what God had already done and an assurance from God that he was going to be the next king. It's like Oliver Cromwell said, the British politician, we are immortal till our work on earth is done. So why did David pick five stones? Why didn't he pick, you know, one if he knew he was going to win? Well, he was being prudent. But he also, and people have conjectured, you know that in the story it goes on to say that there are four brothers of Goliath. And it is possible that David looked around and said, let's make this a family affair today. <laughs> so in some concluding remarks, I just want to say this. 
This story obviously has bigger implications and could have been preached in a very different way today had I taken some other strings of this story. I certainly could have taken the string of this story that it's large because David is the king through whom the Messiah is going to come. I could have talked about the Abrahamic covenant today, the land, the seed, and the blessing promised to Israel, of which the seed comes through David, the Messiah, and he has to win this battle that day. And that the land that they're fighting for in this story is going to be the place where Messiah the king eventually comes to. And that the blessing will come through David and his line through Messiah to the new covenant. We could have taken those angles, or we could have taken the angle that David is a picture in the Old, the Old Testament of the coming Christ, and that he's the one who goes for his, for his people out into the field and nobody else was worthy. Those are all pictures in scripture that we could have gone to. But don't lose the fact that in this story is the providence of God in which human effort is not necessary, but God always uses means to accomplish his ends unless it's a miracle. And therefore, providence is not fatalism. Providence is the work of God in which he uses the effort you put in order to accomplish his purposes. I have five wrap-ups, and here we go. Five things I would suggest to you as you leave as possible things to think about from this text. Number one, I would suggest you read the Bible for yourself. Uh, we reread those stories. The Christmas story is full of such traditions. You know, the Magi were floating on clouds and they were eating pizza, you know, in this. Read the Bible for yourself. Number two, God's solution to giant problems is the normal, ordinary use of providence by which he trains, tests, and causes to trust his believers to do that. Number three, there is a wilderness motif in the Bible, and I suggest to you this as a pastor. Where does God have you today? Is it possible that God is training and testing you, and perhaps in the wilderness of your own life? And when I say that, it's not the main point of the passage, but it's certainly a corollary to this. Does God have you in a place in your life where it seems like, why am I here? This is not at all what I thought God was going to be doing. I have a sense from Scripture and from my calling in life and all those things that God has something for me, but I'm here in the midst of a wilderness where I'm just taking care of sheep at night. Recognizing again that a wilderness theology to a true Christian is Romans 8.28, that all these things are working together to good and God has a purpose in doing them. Number four, God is using the mundane. Please stay under authority where you are. Remain under the Greek word hupomeno, remain under the discipline or the work of God where you are because God is building in you character. Don't be tempted or be tempted, but don't give in to running away. And fifth and finally, I would suggest as a very devotional thought, what is it that you have in your hand that God has been preparing for his use that you might give to him for his service in his providence? What happened there that day? David was not a small boy. He was a man. He didn't have an inferior weapon. He had a strategic weapon. He did have military training. David was not an unknown. He didn't reject Saul's armor because it was too big, but because it was not useful to him. It was not a miracle of providence. And it is how God, and it is God's solution to giant problems. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for your kindness in leading us to this. May we leave here secure that what you are doing in us is in preparation for your glory, the good of your church, and the good of 
of your people. And we thank you in the name and through the blood of Jesus. Amen.